yeah, it's interesting how how much the the Christian space has actually become a space for escaping uh, the world. Like it is not a place where you engage with the world. It is a place where you escape it. Um, you escape the problems that are real. You escape the conversations that need to happen. You you enter this sort of emotional uh, whipped cream of of an environment and just float there. And uh, and that's sort of what the Christian culture has kind of become. It's it's it has it's more entertainment uh, now, even as people would say, but it's so worshipful or it's so. Um, like I feel my connection to God and I'm like, well, but it's not actually informing or, or reorienting your heart to the actual gospel. And it's not actually giving you any footing to look at the world and see your place in it. Like it's just, it's just an, an emotional escape. Uh, and I think that's, that's unfortunate because the church uh, of anything has, has had and, and has the opportunity to step in and and be a really positive and powerful movement uh, to to um, you know to serve culture, um, but it's more that's I think that's why the line seems so glaringly clear right now between what is supposedly worship and what is you know and and kind of Christian and what is not is just because it's it's so obvious when. Um, you know, when the church keeps promoting itself as this sort of fluff, um, an emotional worship movement. So, yeah, it's void of good um, good art that is reflecting on the way human beings can, can see the world rightly. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and I'm really excited to bring you today's guest. Uh, we haven't had a musician on in a while, um, and this is a guy who I've been following on social media for a while. Um, I just I think he's a really insightful, thoughtful, uh, smart guy who um, you know tries to generate a lot of interesting conversations uh, through social media, even though that could be uh, quite the challenge, uh, especially on Twitter, uh, where um, I'm convinced that angry people go uh, to hang out. Um, I might be wrong, but anyway, uh, he tries his best, and we talk about that um, in, in the interview. Um, how, how do you start a dialogue uh, with people who you don't necessarily agree with, but how do you keep a civil conversation going, um, which is, I, I think, what we need more of uh, in society in general. Um, but he, he does it, and he does it in a way that is gentle and um, respectful, uh, despite maybe some of the feedback that he gets uh, coming his direction. So I, you know, I, I commend anyone who can, who can do that, especially on social media. So um, anyway, um, our guest today uh, is Dan, uh, otherwise known as a lead singer for, from Jars of Clay. Uh, so a lot of you probably uh, grew up uh, on Jars of Clay, just as I did. Uh, so I was really excited. Um, big fan of his music, and uh, um, and, and again, just uh, you know, really uh, enjoy you know the conversations that he kickstarts um, online. So uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about um, I, we really get into um, kind of 
the expectations that are set as a as an artist who is categorized as Christian, um, and uh, and what that means, um, and what he's working on now. So uh, he's working on some really interesting projects, um, including Bloodwater, uh, which is a uh, uh, not-for-profit that helps uh, provide wells, uh, clean water wells in Africa. Um, so really cool uh, stuff that he's working on. So um, so check all that out. We talked about it in the episode. Um, as always, um, check the show notes for uh, pertinent links and information there. We'll have all that good stuff in there. Um, and as usual, thank you to all of you who um, support us uh, again through you know encouraging emails and and you know the the uh, conversations that we get started uh, through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and really appreciate the encouragement. It's been a bit of a rough year, so um, you know big thanks to all of you who who have reached out or who have at least kept us in your in your thoughts and prayers. So things are things are getting a lot better. So we appreciate it. Um, and, and also thank you to all of you who uh, support us on Patreon, um, whether it's a dollar a month or however much um, you're, you're able to to provide it. It, it really helps the podcast, um, helps us uh, with the upkeep of uh, all sorts of things from our website um, to you know upgrading of equipment uh, to uh, paying for production stuff. So really appreciate that. And uh, um, the Book of the Month Club seems to always be our most popular. So uh, if that's something that you're interested in, if you sign up for that, the Book of the Month Club, we send you out um, a, a specifically curated book um, by by us, and we ship that straight to your door um, every single month. So um, again, thank you guys so much for that. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, uh, go to www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, that's our uh, website where we have all of our episodes. You can stream directly from the website, so our entire archives all 94-odd episodes are up there and available. Um, additionally, you can link to all our social media. Um, you can uh, read our blog. Um, we've got some some blog posts coming out. We've got another one that that I wrote um, actually a year ago uh, for Christmas time uh, that will be coming out in about another week or so. So look forward to that. Um, in addition, thank you guys so much for um, continuing to also support the musicians that we use on the show. So these musicians are kind enough to let us use their music. Um, and so uh, if you like some of the music or the musicians that we've used in the show, uh, please follow them on social media, support them by their music um, and, and uh, follow us on uh, Spotify as well. So we've got a Spotify playlist. We update uh, with all the artists that we use. So if you like the music, you can follow our playlist on Spotify. We keep it up updated and uh, we've got quite a few, quite a few artists on there as well. So again, thanks to everybody. We've got one more episode that uh, we're super excited to release. Um, a little bit before Christmas, and we'll take the the next month off, and we'll kick it back off beginning of 2020 with some some exciting new episodes um, there as well. So, thank you guys again, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks uh, with another great episode. But before then, we got to get to the current episode. So, without further ado, Dan freaking Hasseltine. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Today, I'm very excited, uh, big fan. Uh, we've got Dan. Uh, a lot of you probably know him as the lead singer of Jars of Clay. So, Dan, thank you so much for spending some time this evening with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. We've been trying to get this together for a while, so this is uh, nice. We were able to finally uh, find it in our schedules to, to make it happen. But um, a lot of people obviously know you from from your music, and um, but maybe not a lot of people know about you know your, your, your upbringing and that sort of thing. So I wonder if you could start there and kind of talk about what kind of upbringing you had and, and, uh, um, and, and what kind of uh, spiritual uh, upbringing you had there. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, at first I was reflecting, I was just thinking back on one of the first times I think you guys reached out to me and I, I actually think it's been years. It's been years of like saying, yeah, we should do something. Um, and then not actually connecting on it. So, um, so, um, yeah, we should congratulate ourselves that (laughs) we actually have done it. Uh, we're talking, Uh, (laughs) um, so let's see, I, uh, I grew up, I was born and raised up in um, Massachusetts, sort of Western Mass. So everybody knows Boston, but I was further west um, in in a small town called Hamden, and that's where I, you know, first started going to church. My parents brought me to uh, a small Catholic church um, called St. Mary's. That was in our uh, our community, and that's where I, you know, I kind of I was baptized there. I was, um, you know, had received my first communion. So I kind of went through all of the catechism and stuff in the Catholic church. Uh, and, and it, what's interesting is like the one view I have or one, um, memory I have from being really, really young, uh, cause I was probably, you know, four or five years old at the time is I rem- I have this view of, one of those old green felt boards with pictures of Jesus. And I remember coloring a picture of Jesus on the cross, um, in Sunday school class. And (laughs) it always feels like sort of a strange, like, you know, to think of that, the context of a, a little kid coloring in a black and white picture of, Jesus on the cross. Like it's, it's weird. But anyway, that, that was where my faith journey started. Um, and, uh, and I, I'm actually really grateful for the Catholic church because for me, my journey understanding faith, or at least trying to start navigating it started with an experience of a church that really, um, loved the arts loved the reverence, uh, and the mystery of who God was. Now I didn't necessarily take that all in back then, but it was my initiation into these ideas of God, um, was to, you know, through the images and the sculptures and the paintings and, and the, and the architecture of the Catholic church. And, And so I felt like that was a really positive thing. Um, my parents, decided that, uh, not, you know, after that we were, we kind of moved, we were a bit nomadic as a family, uh, in terms of churches. And we, we had little short stints in the, uh, um, you know, in a few different areas, but eventually made our way to, um, the Episcopal church. And that's where I spent most of my time was was in the Episcopal Church, and I think there is something about um, liturgy, the liturgical church, where you know it wasn't about um, you know how great the pastor spoke or things like that. It really was. It was just like we're we're there 
Um, and we, we kind of take on the same process and we, we get to sort of experience who God is, um, through the liturgy, no matter where we are uh, emotionally that day or how good the pastor is at, um, describing a certain element of faith or whatever. So, you know, so there's something about that that I really loved too. And that's where I, I kind of at least sort of established some roots about, um, being a Christian, uh, was through the Episcopal church. Uh, also, you know, another church experience where I felt like they also honored the, uh, kind of the mystery of who Jesus was, who God was. And, um, and so I was really grateful for that. Uh, it wasn't until I got to college that, that my journey kind of took a little bit of a turn. Um, well, I say that actually the other thing that really informed my faith journey was, uh, when I was about 10 years old in the Episcopal church, uh, a friend of mine, um, a girl that I actually had a crush on <laughs> was, uh, was, she was in a car accident and I actually, I stood on the side of the road and watched them, um, kind of pull her body out of the, this wrecked minivan. Oh gosh. And and I remember, and I remember, you know, I'm in this community where all I have to do, uh, the only thing I can do is try to take the, the emotion that I was feeling, that, that sense of loss, that, that sense of confusion, um, and bring it to the people that were in that community. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't necessarily take stock and think that, well, all of the people in this community are reeling, all of them are, are suffering and, and experiencing the shock of this loss and the pain of this loss. But I would bring that to them. And the only thing people would return was, well, you know, she's in a better place. And uh. it was all these sort of little, little sort of sentimental phrases and things that, that never touched the kind of pain that I was feeling. And, and it was that moment actually that I, I think I, I put it back on, on God. Like, I was like, all right, if you can't, you need to prove to me that you have a place for suffering, you know, that you can make sense of this. And that was sort of like, I did that as a 10 year old. And then that's been kind of the core, (laughs) it's been the core of like, uh, of where I have, sought after an experience uh, of God has been to see, okay, in all the different places where, where pain seems to be existing, God, what are you saying about this? What are you showing us through this? How is this being redeemed? And like all of those sorts of questions would come up and I would navigate life that way. Wow. That you sound like a very uh, intense ten-year-old, you know. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was. <laughs> but I've been an, an intense sort of every year old mostly. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> no, that's oh yeah. wow, that's that's such an interesting um, story about how that that at such a young age tragedy struck and influenced obviously the way that you kind of started to see the world at such a young age. Um, so talk a little bit about, so you mentioned you went off to college and, and things kind of took a turn there. Um, and if I, if I remember reading correctly, that's where you met the the guys that would later form a band with you uh, that would become Jars of Clay. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I was somewhat, the, you know, I, I, 
navigated youth group culture as a kid and um, ended up going to a Christian college uh, called Greenville College in Illinois, Southern Illinois. This is about an hour east of St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, it was, it was a, a small liberal arts college in the middle of a cornfield, in the middle of a dry county. So there just was not much to do. Um, but but at the same time, it was this amazing incubator for uh, for creativity. Hmm. Just like it was just a, the kind of place that they had cultivated so well the uh, a, a way for students to connect with each other and collaborate with each other and use learn how to use the studios and um, get better at making music and. Uh, and so the, the you know the great privilege of that was you know, as I met the guys that uh, are in jars of clay. We all were were kind of living in the basement of this this dorm, and uh, and playing music uh, in studio recording classes, and we were just finding that that we could collaborate really well together, and the things that we would do just had this this great. Um, this sort of forward thinking, innovative, uh, creativity. And, uh, it was really satisfying. It was just satisfying to work with them on different songs and different projects. And so that kind of led us to, to start thinking more seriously about what we were doing, uh, as a group. Uh, and what we ended up doing is, you know, the, well, the other thing was, was, um, the more we became friends, the more we, we started learning about each other's, kind of journey and, and the way that we saw the world and just found that we had all had similar questions and in similar takes on the way Christianity was weaving itself into culture or really at the time, the way that it was removing itself from culture, uh, you know, and sort of isolating itself from what was really happening in the world. And we all had these similar questions about how come every time I listen to Christian radio, it doesn't sound or a Christian song doesn't sound like the music that, uh, that I like to listen to. Like, what is it yeah. about the lyrics and why does it seem to be that I can't relate to the, the stories and the journeys of the people that are singing because everything is so joyful or right. victorious or, similar questions. And I, and I found that that, that really, um, that was a huge part, I think, in us all going, oh, well, we should probably maybe try to express some of this in music. And even the first song that we wrote uh, was the song Fade to Gray, which is a song that we wrote really about um, doubting. And, you know, we would call it the skeptics anthem was kind of what we, the no way we kidding. described it. Uh, yeah. So our very first song was all about this idea of <laughs> finding this, you know, when we are when we, a lot of people would describe, you know, they become a Christian or they, be, they enter into this faith journey and all of a sudden everything becomes very clear and black and white to them. And, and we kept kind of going, gosh, the more <laughs> we step into this, the the more vague and more gray everything seems to be becoming. And, and so that was the first thing we wanted to try to express through song as this group of guys. And so Fade to Gray was written uh, in our, you know, the end of our freshman year. Wow. Of college. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but it was, that was like the, 
the, sort of the, the mentality and the bent of, of our conversations uh, at the time. So 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 as you guys, um, I, I, obviously, I read online that that you know you guys started playing local shows, and then in if I don't know if this is accurate or not, you you can never quite trust Wikipedia, but said that you guys won a talent show. Is that right? right. Yeah, yeah. It was through this interesting thing happened in our sophomore year. We were so we're in studio recording classes, and we have to write songs and then record them, and then get graded on the recordings. So we had just finished recording, I think three or four songs. And, uh, um, we saw in CCM magazine of all places, yep. uh, which I don't even know that it exists anymore, but, um, <laughs> but maybe, anyway, maybe online. Yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. Maybe online. There was this, um, competition where they said, send in a cassette tape, uh, with three songs, uh, kids just, uh, ask your parents what a cassette tape is. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Listening. Um, <laughs> so they said, send in three songs on a cassette tape and an industry professional will critique your material. Whoa. Um, and to us, that was, we had, because the music we were making felt really different from everything else that we had been, uh, exposed to. We had no idea like if what we were doing, had any merit to it. Yeah. And you know, our music, music professors are going to hold any, any, you know, positive, uh, accolades to the, you know, really close to the, to the vet at that point, because they're trying to teach us. And so they don't want to be like, you guys are great. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> that sort of ruins the teacher student <laughs> uh, yeah. dynamic. So, so we ended up, so we're like, Oh wow, we can have somebody who's in the industry. Um, tell us if what we're doing is good or not. And so we really actually didn't care about the competition. We, we more cared about just somebody critiquing what we were doing and giving us an honest response to it. And, uh, but it turned out that we, we ended up getting a phone call and like, Hey, you're one of the 10 finalists. And so we need you to come to Nashville Whoa. and, uh, and play a couple songs live, which was funny for us because we'd never performed live as a band really at that point we were still just doing class projects in the studio. So we weren't really a live band. We didn't really know how to play the songs as performances. We, we were just recording. So it was a totally different thing. We had to figure that out. But we went down to Nashville, ended up winning this competition over our spring break, went back to school. And while we were up there, we started getting phone calls from different record executives and people representing different labels, all saying like, well, what do you guys plan to do? What are your ideas? Like, do you have any, uh, any, you know, aspirations for making music? What's your plan? And, and I think at one point there were about seven different record labels that, that had been communicating with us. And we finally said, all right, maybe after the school year, <laughs> we'll go down to Nashville, spend the summer there and just have conversations and see what happens. If nothing, we'll go back to school and, um, but we never ended up going back. We, we stayed in Nashville. We, we signed a record deal and went right in the studio to make the record and then hit the road quickly after that. 
So it was, yeah. So the story just kind of took off uh, pretty quickly for us. So, so what is the? You said you had at one point seven different labels. So obviously, you've got you've got choices. You know, a lot of bands like don't even aren't even that fortunate. You know, they're lucky to have one label right. interested in. And so, you guys have a decision to make. Obviously, as a as a group, as a group of friends who have been making music only for themselves and their professors up until right. this point. So, yeah. So what? Obviously, I think it was the the record label was called Essential. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we did, we ended up, <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Cause when I think back on it, I'm not, not really sure all that went into the reasoning behind it. Um, how we ended up on essential records entirely. But what I, what I do remember is that for all of us, we, we wanted to not just be making music for, um, the church. Like uh, that was part of, of our decision as a band was we wanted to be able to have, the option to have opportunities in the greater music culture where we had been inspired and, you know, that, that held the music that we listened to as kids and, and were educated in music and inspired. So, um, so our, our main concern was just that if we signed with one label over the other, that we wouldn't have certain opportunities. Like we wouldn't be able to play with, other artists that we admired and respected and we'd end up kind of getting pulled into the super niche, um, kind of musical space. And, uh, you know, and we all been in, I worked at a record shop, um, all through high school and, uh, and I knew where the Christian music section was. It was on the, the, it was just past the comedy and, um, world music records. Yep. Yeah, uh, in a place where it was, it was definitely positioned as something that just was not relevant to the greater cultural conversation. Yeah, and uh, and I didn't want to go and find my records in that space. I wanted my records and my music to be um, where everybody else was, where Pesh Mode was, and Led Zeppelin, and yeah. the Beatles, and all the bands that we were listening to. So <laughs> yeah, so it, it uh, so that was kind of our our one thing and essential was such a small record label at the time they were so unproven they didn't really have any acts they were such a small indie label that it just felt like well we would all grow together like we could experience it we didn't have to carry the weight of having this large label brand attached to us and so that meant that other opportunities could um could develop and uh yeah and sure enough it happened we uh, we were able to connect with Silvertone Records and Zamba, and we were the coffee table that came with the apartment uh, <laughs> every time the, the label was sold by someone else and, and added on. And um, you know, we've we've been kind of a funny collection of label mates with with very strange artists. You know, from <laughs> Backstreet Boys to R. Kelly to the Stone Roses, and um, you know. Matthew Sweet and all these <laughs> strange <laughs> bands from that kind of early nineties era. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was sort of a funny time to just be out and, but at least have the opportunity to have our records uh, in places that Christian bands wouldn't normally have their records available. Yeah. And, and, and uh, growing up in the, in the nineties and, and being a teenager in the, in the latter half, um, you know, it was a very interesting time for, I think for Christian music in general, or at least artists that were kind of, you know, 
uh, seen as like Christian bands or whatever. Um, I remember I was first exposed to um, like Christian music as it were. And I, I had this, this, I think you mentioned it earlier. I also had this impression of Christian music as just being this very cheesy, like I, you know, stuff that you find way down the radio dial. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that, <laughs> you know? And then one of my friends, uh, it was like, Oh no, man, you got to listen to these bands. And then he introduces me to like Christian punk rock and Christian metal and Christian rock. And you know, they're you know, like, all these really great bands who I felt could stand on the stage with anyone else. And to me, listening to their music, it, it didn't come across as overtly Christian. I thought this to me, I, I would hear on, yeah. on mainstream radio. And I, I don't understand what makes them, you know, I guess Christian, you know, finger quotes, but, but talk about a little bit about how sure. yeah. the industry was really growing at that point. I think there's, there was this noticeable progression for like Christian artists who like, obviously the industry caught on to the same yeah. thing I noticed, you know, and, you know, so, so some of these mainstream larger labels start to notice, uh, towards the late nineties that, Hey, there are these Christian bands who are in these smaller Christian labels who are selling a ton of records. Yeah. And so then you start to see these bands get signed up by like Atlantic records and universal and, you know, Electra and all these larger labels. Um, talk about what was going on in the industry right. at the time. And, did you guys ever feel the pressure to conform to a certain, um, a, a lack of a better word, a certain packaging or a certain um, look or feel? Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> my, the direct answer would be to say, yes, we, we felt the pressure and that's why we have photographs of the band in, in shiny t-shirts and <laughs> things like that. And, um, but, <laughs> but yeah. I, I, ultimately I, I don't know that we, necessarily we were very bullheaded uh as a band um we were we we uh, like we didn't know enough about the industry <laughs> to really know what we were pushing back on except that uh we we knew that we just wanted to have control some kind of creative control and so like even into our but that season of the CCM or just the music space was a really cool time for Christian music. Um, and I say that because to me, Christian artists had figured out that they wanted to care as much about the songwriting craft, the production craft, the innovation of music, um, and the development of, of a creative process as they did the kinds of messages that they wanted to talk about in their songs. And, and so it it meant that there was this huge amount of innovation coming out of the Christian music space. Um, I, I loved being a part of it. I remember making records, um, even with, uh, Matt Bronway, um, who is just, uh, he's just been, he was, uh, part of jars of clay in the very beginning. And then, uh, became a music producer and he and I are in the band together now, but, um, he, uh, you know, we were working on the very first plum record and, and the amount of time and space they gave to us, the label gave to us to create sounds that had never been created before to, you know, fiddle around in kitchens and in places where, um, you could find something to make a noise that you could, flip upside down and turn and build, you know, just all of this, it was like making Beatles records. Yeah. 
when they decided, hey, we can just experiment with everything. I felt like we were in a great kind of space for that. Uh, and that, and it all, like it was, it was us. And obviously you had six pence uh, and the richer were doing amazing things. This is even previous to Kiss Me coming out, like their, yeah. their kind of development. And, you know, and, and there were, we were also taking nods from bands like uh, the choir, uh, with Steve and, and Steve Hindelong and Gary, um, who were, you know, who had made some really amazing bodies of work. Um, but you're, and there was also the sense that the prophetic mattered. The ability to look at the world and describe it was incredibly valid and important in the music, uh, within the Christian space. It didn't have to be a worship song. Like it didn't have to be expressly about Jesus and it didn't have to wrap up with a positive ending. It didn't have to be like a, a, an album full of little short sitcom episodes where by the end, everything is all back to normal and perfect. Um, people were able to, to sit and linger in a little bit more of the pain and the confusion and the questions. And it was, to me, it was our wheelhouse. It was a great time to be in music because those things were being cultivated. And I, I don't know that I can tell you exactly what happened um, to change that. Uh, but, but something definitely changed <laughs> yeah. and, and the music, like it stopped, it stopped being valid to be able to write from a prophetic standpoint. Um, they redrew the lines of what was Christian and what was not. And most of us that were making music that was prophetic were attempting to just describe the world and be honest, found ourselves outside of that space and yet still having to try to make records for that community. And, uh, and that's when I think all the tensions started happening. And a lot of us really felt like, wow, we're, we're really, this isn't our, our space anymore. This isn't what we had signed up for. This isn't, uh, satisfying on a creative level at all to just have to write these silly worship songs and praise courses. Like it just, to us, it was not the right kind of space to cultivate deeper creativity and better forms of expression. Yeah, that, that's interesting that you say that. We um, we interviewed John Mark McMillan about a year ago, and of course, everybody knows John Mark McMillan for writing, you know, some of the most well-known worship songs yeah. out, out there. And he talked about how he sat down to write um, his last record, and it just couldn't do it. And he was kind of going through a season of doubt, and uh, I think his, uh, you know, he would say his faith was evolving, and it looked different. And he was like, "I can't just go into the studio and write a sappy worship song. I, it's just not in me right now." And so, fortunately, yeah. he had a, a great producer who was like, "Just write what you're feeling," and he did, and it ended up being this amazing record. But, um, yeah. Yeah, we've we've gotten to a weird place because yeah. he feels pressure because obviously, you know, people want to pay him a lot of money to write that sappy worship right. song. Worship. That right. does not reflect yeah. the world, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how how much the the Christian space has actually become a space for escaping. 
the world. Like it is not a place where you engage with the world. It is a place where you escape it. Um, you escape the problems that are real. You escape the conversations that need to happen. You, you enter this sort of emotional, uh, whipped cream of, of an environment and just float there. And, uh, and that's sort of what the Christian culture has kind of become. It's, it's, it has, it's more entertainment, uh, now, even as people would say, but it's so worshipful or it's so, um, like I feel my connection to God and I'm like, well, but it's not actually informing or, or reorienting your heart to the actual gospel. And it's not actually giving you any footing to look at the world and see your place in it. Like it's just, it's just an, an emotional escape. Uh, and I think that's, that's unfortunate because the church uh, of anything has, has had and, and has the opportunity to step in and, and be a really positive and powerful movement uh, to, to, um, you know, to serve culture. Um, but it's more, that's, I think that's why the line seems so glaringly clear right now between what is supposedly worship and what is, you know, and, and kind of Christian and what is not is just because it's, it's so obvious when, um, you know, when the church keeps promoting itself as this sort of fluff, um, an emotional worship movement. So, yeah, it's void of good, um, good art that is reflecting on the way human beings can, can see the world rightly. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting because, um, in our experience, the people that we've, um, talked to over the years, you know, a lot of people keep coming back to the same word authenticity. They're looking for authenticity, whether it be in, um, the art that they consume or the church that they go to. Um, and, and, and these millennials, like, are, are a lot smarter, I think, than the credit that they're given. And they can smell uh, a fake from a mile away. And they can they can sense when something is inauthentic and they're being sold, um, you know, a product. And, and so it's interesting that you say that. But um, so I guess the question I'm leading up to is, what role do you think that, um, I guess, the capitalization of the inevitable, I guess, ca- uh, capitalization of, uh, the Christian industry as, as a whole, you know, not just the music, but all of the different products that yeah. come with it, uh, playing that. Cause it seems to me that the, anything that you can market eventually, um, you know, I, I think it probably feeds into the fact that they have now this product that they need to protect. And it kind of feeds into that kind of, um, I don't know, artistic yeah. killing thing that it's become. Yeah. I think it's a complicated question to answer um, because I can see it a lot of different ways. I think one of the confusing elements is that in almost every area that I think about when, when I think about consumers, like the things we buy, the things we want, like we, we want to buy an iPhone, but every year we want a new iPhone. We, we all like gather around and sit and watch, uh, you know, the Apple world, display all the new features and the new technology that's coming out when we deal with our cars or, um, you know, just all of these different things, we are constantly upgrading to the next more, more innovative thing. Um, and so it's a part of what, what we long for. 
um, is that something is made new or something is, is, is a new version of itself and it has better things or is more streamlined or it has more features. And, and then we get to music and art and all we want is for our art to stay the same. Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. we, we fight to make sure the artists we love do not innovate. We fight to make sure that the record we love, uh, that the next record that comes out will sound just like the one that we love so that we don't have to like, we don't have to work at our art. And, and so it's, it's a strange phenomenon because you go in any other sphere of supply and demand where people, they're constantly trying to innovate so that people will want to buy their product. But when you come, when it comes to a songwriter and an artist, like we have to constantly be withholding that next creative move because it could be too much and the artist might not take it on, you know, or the, the audience might not appreciate it and they might not accept it or be able to cross that bridge. And, uh, and it's such a strange thing. And I think the, the industry at large is simply responding to that strange phenomenon in a lot of ways. Now they, they, they definitely can contribute to it because they're the ones you know, Christian radio, for instance, obviously is, they're not interested at all in innovation. They don't, they want everything to sound kind of the same and yeah. they've achieved that. So it's the most bizarre thing to put on a Christian radio station and go, wow, literally I can almost not tell the difference between any of these songs and these <laughs> artists, like everything, it just all... Yeah, it just is the same version of something else. The words aren't even creative. They use the same words. Yes. Instrumentation mostly. Ugh. Like it's just, it's just like this pool of, hey, here's where there's no more artists. There's just, here's Christian music. Right. And, uh, you know. <laughs> here's the acceptable so, words you can um, use in your yeah. lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I say that because that's my description of, of Christian radio. And, and I know that outside of that, there still are those, those fringe artists that are doing really great things, but, but they aren't, they don't get the spotlight. They don't get the attention. They don't get, um, they don't get enough, uh, of the spotlight to really kind of allow them to, to push the needle forward or become part of the, the greater cultural conversation. Um, and as things become more niche, they, they fall even deeper into a pool where it's harder to find them. So, you know, so I think that's, that's a problem. But I think about that. So, so you, I think there is an element where, where the the simple like idea of supply and demand is being both responded to by the cult, by the the record labels. They're going, oh well, people obviously Christians obviously don't want their artists to evolve. They don't want to be listening to stuff that's telling them the truth about the world. They'd rather be listening to things that are just lying to them and saying, yeah, you're great. You're going to be just fine. God is awesome. And don't worry about it. And don't forget to buckle your kids up in the back of the minivan. You know, that's what they're <laughs> wanting. Yeah. Um, and so they're supplying that. <laughs> and so they're saying, give me more of that, create more of that so that I can give it to the people. And, uh, you know, but again, it's what was the Henry Ford thing, uh, quote where he talks about, um, that Steve jobs pushed back on, which was, you know, the people will know what, what you want to give, what they need. And so you listen to the people to tell you what to do next and what to provide for them. And Steve Jobs came back with saying, yeah, you know, if you listen to the people, they would have said they just wanted a more powerful horse 
yeah. uh, back in the day, they would have never innovated to know that they could need and want an automobile. And, you know, and so that whole idea of the marketplace, they're listening to the people and just responding rather than saying, no, you know, actually what we know you're, you're going to really appreciate and, and eventually will grow to love is watching your artists evolve and continue to grow in their artistry and, and creative expression. Wouldn't spot on an empty canvas, wouldn't share in an empty room, no place for a revolution, and no hope that the signs are true. We stand at the edge of something, will we ever know what it is? Hold on, cause the wind is rising, and we can't get away from it. Yeah, and I feel, I feel like, uh, as, as a fan, again, of your, of your music, um, you can see the evolution over the years. Like, First album, very, very different from the last. Um, so talk about how you guys were able to still kind of retain that ability to to grow and evolve over time. And then also, like, talk a little bit about, because I'm very curious about this. I, I love good lyrics. And uh, I think I've mentioned this on Twitter before, but I think you're one of the most underrated lyricists out there. Um, I just appreciate that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Um but you cover very uh, heavy topics in your lyrics, uh, it, although it might be like a, a lighter melody behind it. Like there's some very yeah. heavy lyrics in there. So talk about how your uh, how the subject matter has even evolved over time, along with the music. Yeah, sure. Well, you know the 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 um, every jazz record was different from the one before it, and some of that was was merely a product of or a result of us just having so much time in between records at the start of our career, we were making records every three and a half years. So we would make a record and it wouldn't be, but you know, until three years later that we would step back in the studio to record another album. And, and a lot happens in three years, right? Yeah. Uh, entire musical genres rise and fall in three years, <laughs> much yeah. less time nowadays. And so, so back then, I think what we found was like between the first and second album, between that self-titled and then Much Afraid, there was, you know, Jars came out and then um, there were 20 bands, 30 bands, 100 bands that were all doing sample loops and acoustic guitars yeah. and adding string instruments in and, and some iteration or version of that. And I think we realized we're like, oh well, that's we have to evolve now. We can't, we can't just simply stay and recreate that same sort of tonal um, kind of record. So so we decided to do something a little different. And and so we were we were sort of I felt like we were constantly being pushed out of the space that we created and the sound that we had created. <laughs> so we were a little bit nomadic in that like we would get there and create something and then all these other bands would start doing that thing. And then we'd be like, okay, well we can't do that. Let's, what do we do next? We do something else. Then all these bands would try to, you know, kind of do that. Like, all right, now let's have, we have to move over here to this space and try <laughs> something different. And, and so, you know, that, so that there's that element of it. There's also just the, the actual, you know, some of those records are very influenced by the sound of that season. You know, there's some of our records I think are, are very classic sounding and will stand up over time. Others, I think sound just like the years they were created in and they will forever sort of be stuck in that space. And so, um, some of that was just, 
the producer we were working with, um, the bands that were inspiring us at the time, and also just our own level of investment in the, in the project, you know, cause sometimes we would hear something that was really cool and be like, well, rather than try to innovate, let's just do something kind of like that. And you know, yeah. we would be the ones sort of encroaching into other bands territory. Um, and so a lot of that, you know, that's, and I think that happens all the time. Like if you follow any band that is, that has set themselves up on a path where they want to have a catalog of music and to have a long-term music conversation, you're going to hear um, influences uh, encroach on the sound of their records. You look at a Fleetwood Mac or, or any artist and you go, well, their records and their conversation really changes from album to album. Also, there's some core things that will always be the same, but but there's a lot that shifts and changes. And that's, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a sign of a healthy, healthy band that's willing to, um, to reinvent and, um, and invite new sounds and new textures into their music and who's willing to learn how to be a better band, you know, and write better songs. So that's kind of what we were trying to accomplish over time. Uh, and that's been, that's just been true. I mean, of, of really the culture of jars of clay has been a culture of, of how do we get better at our craft? We were always, we felt like we were songwriters first and a band second. Um, which meant that we were not terribly fussed about the kinds of textures we brought in we always wanted to just elbow enough space to use whatever sound or texture served the song the best when we were recording them. And so we never, we never really were that concerned to say, Hey, the jars, the jars fans want us to make these kinds of records that sound like this. And so we need to keep doing that. We were just more think, Oh, this song is not an acoustic song. It needs to have more eighties style synthesizer in it. And (laughs) she's like, okay, well let's do that then. Um, and so we didn't necessarily feel terribly bound by, um, a sound of a brand like, like some bands have been over the years. So that was part of it. And then on the writing side, like the second question was about the lyrics. Like that was always, I mean, that's, that's the part that is, is such a, um, a looking glass into my own journey because, because it is, you know, I started out as a young Christian and having a greater sense of, um, absolutes, a greater sense for what was true and what wasn't, um, what was good and what was evil. And the the more you live life and the more experiences a person has. And certainly for me, the more experiences I had, um, I couldn't, plant those flags anymore. I had to keep pulling up flags that were the agreements I had with the world about how God worked and where he worked and what he was doing and who I was. And, uh, you know, all of those things, the more, you know, especially if you're planting them young, yeah. um, <laughs> you're yeah. just going to spend your life uprooting these, these flags that you want to try to, uh, fight for. But ultimately it's like, well, you know what, I've got to give, God spaced, he can do this when I thought he couldn't, or, you know, just all that. And that just comes out in the writing. And as long as I was willing to just be honest, my only songwriting rule has always really been that I, I can write about anything. Um, I just have to tell the truth. Oh, that's good. Uh, and not, not lie. So that's really it. 
um, which is a nice, a nice kind of freedom as a songwriter. I, you know, the more I talk to young writers or different people, that's, that's always the thing that I try to get them to see. Like there's, there's sort of two things that are important in songwriting. One is tell the truth. And two is just be willing to confess, you know, <laughs> tell yeah. the truth about yourself and your life um, so that other people can, you know, otherwise it's just not, the song is less human and less relatable and people can't, um, it doesn't gain any traction in the lives of other people who need to hear a certain song. So just tell the truth. Yeah, that's so good. I, I think, I think that's what makes uh, a song that lasts to the ages versus one that's fairly forgettable, you know, that just had a catchy hook and was in your brain for a couple of years, but then you forget about it. But the ones that you remember forever, are the ones that the lyrics that you can still recall, you know, 15, 20 years later, because yeah. you identified with something in, in, in those words. Um, so, yeah. so, so, so do the lyrics come first when you guys are writing or what does the process look like when you guys sit down to write a song? Yeah. The jars process was always super high, high pressure, really fast. Um, and that was more just because we all, you know, it was short attention span theater. Um, <laughs> we would sit around and like, we as a band would always write together. Uh, so all four of us would, would find a space in a room. We, uh, we always tried to all break off and write individually and do something with other people and then bring it back to the band. None of those songs ever really made it on a record. Um, because there was something that seemed very unique, uh, about the four of us getting in a room and writing something. And, and so most of us knew that if, if we were going to have a song that made it on a record, it was only going to come if we just brought an idea and everybody got to sort of dig into it and develop it as a band. Um, and so that was, that was just the way that we were right. It would be all four of us all together. Um, and that just meant that like when the guys would start, I would be kind of usually sequestered to a, you know, I had a, uh, either a laptop or a pad and a pen and I was doing, you know, lyric ideas, two guys with acoustic guitars. And then Charlie would have, you know, an old Wurlitzer piano or something like that to play. And, and we would just sit and they would come up with sort of a, a musical idea that was just, you know, a little riff or a motif and it would conjure a certain kind of emotion and then I would just start writing furiously <laughs> because yeah. if I didn't come up with, with a melody and a lyric, um, quickly, um, they would start playing Beatles songs and it would <laughs> just great. tangent and then the song would be gone. Yeah. We lost. So, <laughs> so I really, so a lot of the way we wrote was me just trying to capture their attention and keep them invested in the process long enough to get you know, a basics of a song before they kind of went off and did other things. So that was, that was the typical jars thing. So a lot of songs, the majority of jar songs, the lyrics were written while they were kind of building musical ideas, um, very quickly. There's only a couple of songs that we have ever started and stopped and then come back to, to finish. Most of the time it happens within the span of an hour or five minutes. You know, it's, it's, it's just a really quick That's incredible. pressure uh, driven process. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
fairly yeah, unique, yeah. I would imagine, too. <laughs> so one of the things I think is really interesting, and, and I would love to get your take on this. I've been dying to ask you this. So I, one, of the, one of the things I think um, uh, that I love about you in particular is um, start following you on social media um, initially just because I was a fan of your music. And I, I, I found you to be very thoughtful and uh, engaging with your fans. And, and you are not afraid to ask some tough questions and, but you're always very respectful about it. And, and you're, and you're, I can tell, I can see your attempt is to try to elicit conversation and get people to think and, and honestly just get people's opinions. And, um, so I, I thought it was interesting when I happened to log into Twitter a couple of years ago. And, uh, and now if you Google jars of clay, what's interesting is, uh, you find two things you find, um, uh, jars of clay guitar starts a barbershop. And you find lead singer Jarza Clay pissed off all his fan base. <laughs> so it's like, what are the, right, yeah. Yeah, what are the two? Um, man, man burns parachute. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, talk about that a little bit because I thought that was I, I thought that was a just a uh, an example or microcosm of where we are, uh, not just in music but in in the Christian world, especially in. Um, Western Christianity, where it seems as if you cannot even ask a question uh, that might even come across as if it's a contrary to whatever the accepted belief is without just getting just lit on fire. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was, it was a kind of a horrible experience really. Um, and, you know, I, I hold that in, you know, knowing the context is, is that, you know, the, the conversation was about people who were in the LGBTQ community that were trying to be a part of the church community and the horrible lives that they had to live uh, and just the ways that the church was just destroying people. Um, so I know that my experience was not necessarily uh, at any parallel level to, to what they experienced for most of their lives. So, um, you know, so to start there, but, but yeah, it was, it was a horrible experience to just try to ask a few questions. Um, and I, you know, I've, the, I rehashed a little bit of that story, uh, before, which was just, it was the combination of a couple different things that led me to ask questions about the the gay community in the church because because I just I kept coming back to this idea that um you know the way like for me it was that the night that I asked the I pulled out my phone and started typing away on Twitter was the night that I watched 12 years a slave and and that scene where the slave owner is using scripture to justify his actions of keeping those people enslaved. Yeah. And, and I just thought, boy, we like, we've done this a few times in our history. Like we have taken scripture and we have found a way to use it as a means of control for other people. And as a means of, of, you know, planting that flag of God, you work this way. And I, the minute I get to plant that flag, then like it changes the whole conversation. The church has been planting flags for decades and centuries saying this is the way God works and this is the way he doesn't and, and fall in line or die. 
And the, and the reality is when you plant a flag, the only options you have are either to defend, always be on the defensive when people come towards you with a, a potentially different experience or isolate yourself and move away from people that have a different experience, right? Either way, it's just, you're just keeping at bay what is actually true about the world, right? You're just, instead of just taking your flag and pulling it out and going, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe I should just put this away um, and, you know, living a little bit more open-handed, uh, they, you know, things like how the church treats the homosexual community, the minute someone asks a question, it automatically creates this defensive response. Um, and you marry that with the human condition is, and I, I, this hasn't been my mantra for years and years, but is that the, that human beings will either try to control or destroy anyone or anything that they don't understand. Absolutely. It is just living out of the flesh is that. It is that exact experience of going, you know what? I'm going to find a way to control or or destroy the things that I don't understand. And that was the experience that I had with um, bringing up questions about how the church was um, relating and uh, engaging with the homosexual community. It was to say, look, maybe we're not doing this right. And actually, it was to say, yes, we're not doing this right, but uh, <laughs> where are the blind spots and how can we do this better? Yeah. Um, that, was a, that was a terrifying question for a lot of people, and so much so that some guy on a super conservative website decided he was going to present it in a way that would literally just destroy the legacy of a band that had been hopefully doing good things in the world for 20 plus years. And, you know, that was just sort of the way the story unfolded. So we, you know, my bandmates were pretty angry at me at first. I was pretty, um, sad, uh, over the way that it, it all kind of played out. But ultimately I feel like we are on the right side of history by saying, yes, the church is not treating people in the gay community. Well, I think we are trying to control people we don't understand, and I think that we are hurting people, and um, it, and it can be different. Um, there's room at the table for everyone. So, you know, and I know even someone will listen to this podcast and be like, "I don't agree with that," and that's that's fine. Um, but you know, people who don't agree with the fact that there's room at the table for everyone, I would say, are people that haven't done enough inventory of their own. Um, who they are as a person, um, what they're capable of, and and the proper context uh, that they navigate their faith in. So, Yeah, I, it, that reminds me of a quote I read uh, just the other day, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly um, the wording, but it's, it's something along the lines of, um, it, you know, it, as soon as you 
have decided that any one particular group or person, um, you know, is, is, is out, you know, then you've, then that's the moment that you've created an idol out of God or created your own version of God, you know? Right. Uh, um, yeah. or, or like my dad likes to say, you know, if it's not, if it's not born out of love, then it's probably not of God, you know, like, so default to love. Right. That's what yeah. we have tried to say on this podcast. No, no matter which side of the aisle you stand on or what your opinion is, default to love. I mean, that's what I think we can all agree on that, yeah. right? <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like that statement, what it usually ends up conjuring is the next follow-up question, which is about, well, what about tough love? What about the fact that loving someone is actually telling them that they're doing something wrong and confronting them? And, uh, that's an expression that people ask and they, and that is a form of justification for mistreating people that is is so overused and is is just something that I think, um, Christians have been misusing for forever. You know, it is, yeah, it is a version of God, uh, who's wagging his finger and saying, you better be good or else, which I, I don't think that's that's the posture that God takes with his children. I think that it's a very different kind of posture. Like when we talk about the woman at the well and, uh, and the way that, you know, Jesus tells this woman, you know, now go and sin no more. People are always saying that's because Jesus said, I, you know, he healed her, but then he said, but you better not do it again. Right. Like, no, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's not exactly the, the context for that. And I'm pretty sure that was more about knowing her, and that's our problem. We don't know we don't know each other. Um, most of the people that have the loudest voices um, around any kind of social, cultural, uh, tense conversation are people that are outside of it. They're not people that deal on a regular basis with people that are actually contending with the thing. Like the the people that are the loudest about um, the abortion issue probably are people who have never sat down with a girl, um, in, in a low income community and engaged with her on who she is and why an abortion happened. The person who, who is the loudest anti-gay person is probably not someone who has spent much time with the gay community and probably doesn't actually have great friends that are in the gay community. So, you know, and so we don't know each other enough to really make those calls or to justify that, well, my goal is to, on a mass scale, tell everyone what they're doing wrong, is is just a way for us, again, to control or destroy some, somebody we don't understand because we don't know them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're a big Mumford & Sons fan, but their uh, new single that came out um, says exactly that. You know, we, we, we fear things that we don't understand, and we don't know our neighbors, and, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, yep. So um, I know I know we're running short on time here, but um, I would love to know first of all, like, are you guys working on any new material? I know you have Christmas show coming up um, that that tickets are available yeah. for. Right, so is Jars working on anything? I know the Hawk in Paris. You've got the another project as well. Is there any new um, music on the horizon? Yeah, well, there's uh, there is. Well, we've got a, a new Christmas EP that we did. We. Um, has sort of stumbled into a, a great friendship with a group called Shell, um, which is four sisters, Sarah, Hannah, Eva, and Liza. 
Holbrook, um, all virtuosic in their instruments. Um, and they have done this a Christmas show with us. Jars does one, um, one public show a year. Now we, we've stopped touring really. And so we, um, but we do this one public show at Christmas. Uh, that's a benefit for Bloodwater, and we bring in different bands to come and play. And for the last couple of years, we brought Shell with us. And so we were all singing on stage one uh, afternoon before the show, and we realized, you know what? This is making a pretty great noise. We should probably go in the studio and see if we can do something, collaborate together. And we've never really done that before as a band has said, okay, let's bring in another band and just literally start with nothing in the studio and see where it goes. And, uh, and so we did that and created this, this new family Christmas EP that, um, that comes out November 22nd. And we picked a couple of like standard Christmas songs and then we wrote four new ones, um, together and we all kind of trade off on lead vocals and background vocals and instruments. And it's a really, really fun Christmas project. And, you know, for all of us, I think it really, sparked a new kind of creative energy because because it just was it was a new experience for all of us it was really fun um and i think it sounds really great so um so that'll come out um the hawk and paris is sort of we're we're still sort of hovering trying to figure out what what we want to be doing next we've we've done a couple of instrument libraries that are in the works that will come out for music creators and producers um, so a step deeper into music production than just making records. Um, and then I've been working on, uh, there's a TV show. Um, interestingly enough, and this is, this is sort of the, the funny tension where I think I live most of my life. Um, <laughs> I've been scoring, uh, composing music, uh, with a, a cellist, good friend that toured with us named Matt Nelson for a television show that is called The Chosen which is an episodic telling of the story of Jesus. Whoa. And, uh, yeah. And it's been really, really satisfying to do this work. Uh, it's been a really cool process. Um, I, uh, um, it's not the kind of project that I normally would take on, but the director, um, is a, a guy named Dallas Jenkins. And, and I'm actually a fan, a friend and a fan of what Dallas does because he's, been forever trying to tell the gospel story in a different way. Uh, and so he does, he's, he's giving himself time and taking artistic liberties to, to create backstory for disciples and Pharisees and people that are around Jesus. And, um, the show was a crowdfunded show and it raised the most, uh, a show has ever crowdfunded, uh, in the history of the world, really. Um, they raised a little over $11 million, uh, for the first eight episodes. Wow. And so we actually just finished, we just finished, uh, we wrapped up this last weekend, um, all the music and, and everything for the, the final eighth episode. And, uh, yeah, and it was pretty, it was really fun and, and great to be a part of. So that's, there's also a bunch of new music. The soundtrack for that will come out, um, probably later, uh, in December. Do, do you know uh, when yeah. the release date for the, for the show will be? And what? Yeah, the show is actually so. Yeah, the show is is on a. Um, so you have to go there. You know, everybody's innovating in that world, um, and so you actually go and you. It's available on an app, so you go to the chosen. You look for the chosen uh, in the app store, and you'll find it. There's sort of a picture of the Jesus character on it, 
Um, but on that, you can watch the first, I think the first four episodes are available for free to watch, and then they're going to upload the next four. Um, so people can actually start watching it now if they want. Oh, cool. Um, and then, yeah, so it's actually, that, that part's out. So they can kind of hear how, how it's all, it's all coming together. Um, and then the next four will be released, I think in, uh, mid November. So coming up here. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So before, before we go though, we have to talk about your organization. I, I know it's something that's very important to you and is, is doing great work in the world. So, uh, love for you to talk yeah. a little bit about Bloodwater Mission. Sure. Thank you for, yeah. Thanks for, for asking about that. Yeah. Bloodwater. And I'm actually in our, I'm, I'm talking to you from our, our storage closet at my office here <laughs> nice. at Bloodwater. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah. So, um, so you can have that visual of a guy in a small storage closet. Um, anyway, uh, Bloodwater, yeah, Bloodwater is an organization that the, that the band started uh, back in 2004 um, after going to Africa and spending time there with people who were wrestling with HIV and AIDS uh, in Africa um, back in 2001. And uh, back then, the church was not really interested in, in engaging with people around HIV and AIDS. And, um, you know, it was just, they were scared of, of the, uh, all of the various aspects of it and layers that were attached to sexuality. And certainly the gay community in the U S was, was mostly tied to uh, HIV and AIDS. And so it was just, there was a lot of reasons why the church was basically saying, yeah, we don't want to touch this. Um, but we realized that, that it was a great opportunity for the church. It was a great chance for the church to step up and, actually be the hands and feet and, um, and provide in ways that we hadn't before. So we went there, spent time with people in Africa. And, uh, you know, when we were there, we realized that most of the communities where, where AIDS was really ravishing people were communities that didn't have access to clean water. Ah. And so we realized that although the church might not want to, you know, invest in programs that help people with AIDS, they probably would help people who needed access to clean water. And so we started there and built the organization around that. And uh, we've been going for about 15 years and we've helped over a million people have access to clean water. We, we do about $2 million worth of projects every, every year. And, uh, and that we do that through African partners. Our whole way of working is not to be the great white hero, that comes in from the West. We actually, everything we do is to support small grassroots African organizations that are part of the communities that they want to change. And we come in and we basically say, what can we do to help you um, do what you do at a level that's much better and more efficient? And how can and we, so we fund the water project. So we help put in clean water wells and rain catchment systems and whatever they need to do. Um, and then we also help the organization become healthier in terms of the way that they operate and all that. And, and so we can leave after uh, a season with the organization and know that they will be able to do more work in those communities and provide clean water for more people. And it's really great because the average water, um, like when you spend, spend money to, to um, buy a clean water well, um, through a lot of organizations, uh, if there's no community connection, the average lifespan of that water project is about a year and a half mm. to 18 months. And, 
which is terrible because, but that's just because nobody in the community has ownership. They weren't involved in the process. They, you know, and so it's funny, like we've been in communities where an organization will have like a brand new clean water borehole well, and everyone's walking past it and going to the river to get clean water. Oh, wow. Or to get dirty water because they don't, they, the well isn't theirs. They don't know who owns it. They don't know if they're okay to use it. There's no connection. And so eventually people will just steal the parts off of it and it will become inoperable within 18 months. <laughs> so, oh my so we were like, well, like, you know, but the difference is if the community's invested in it, a project like that can last for 20 years and more. So that's the way we've decided to work as an organization is to say, well, what do we need to do to keep the communities involved, give them ownership of it and teach them how to repair the well, give them all the tools they need, equip them and empower them. And, uh, we've been doing that now for, for 15 years. And, uh, I took on when jars stopped touring, I started doing more on the fundraising side because every year, um, it's kind of up to us. We operate kind of like a foundation, except for we don't have any money. So, <laughs> so we literally have to raise money every year to fund the projects through uh, these partners. So when they send us a proposal and say, Hey, we want to put in 10 borehole wells, uh, this year and do all this work. And there's a dollar amount attached to it. We say, yes, we'll do that. And then we ha- we go out and raise the money. So, um, so I'm constantly on Twitter and all these things as, as many places as I can be and saying, Hey, we, if you care about clean water and care about projects that last for 20 years and want to really help people by empowering them, then, um, be a supporter of what we're doing. I mean, and help us. So that's kind of what we do. <laughs> well, that's amazing. And, uh, we have a good opportunity right now to, uh, to pitch that and, and try to get people to help out. So where, where can people go to, to donate towards this cause? Man, they can just, there's the, the website is the best place. There's, I think there's donate buttons everywhere on the website. Um, but you just go to bloodwater.org and they can, they can find it there. And obviously at the end of the year too, like this is a huge time of year for us. Um, most nonprofits to just try to make what they can to kind of push into January and February. So that prod, there's no lag time in, in getting funds to partners and getting projects started in the new year. So, you know, people are generous over the holidays and, you know, we can certainly, we can do a lot with the funds that people bring in. So, um, yeah, hopefully people will be generous. It's been an interesting year, honestly, because, you know, the national rhetoric, the, the, the tone of leadership for our country is that if you're not an American, you don't matter. Right. And there's a large section of the church that has fallen in line with that. And so a lot of projects and organizations that work internationally, um, we're not getting as much funding from people in the church because Uh, they're choosing to spend their money in the U S because if it's, you know, U S based, we take care of ourselves and our own first. And, um, and it just, it's definitely been, it's made things different and difficult this year. When I'm in, when I'm in DC, I do a lot of advocacy work there and, a big part of that conversation used to be we would start from the point of going, okay, we all know that no matter what you look like or where you're from, you have value, right? Um, <laughs> inherent value. When I had gone up this year, I've had to start the conversation and try to convince certain people 
on the Hill that even if they're not American and they're not white, that they have value. And it's a strange place to have to start a conversation from that you're convincing a human being that another human being is valuable when they don't believe that to be true. And so, you know, so the work we do is it is in some regards, it's a bit of a resistance movement against that mentality that says that only people who are white and live in the United States are worth anything. Um, cause we believe that God has given everybody value and, um, no matter what your skin color or where you you grew up or where you're born, you know, there's, there's a work to be done and we can help. Uh, I love it. I love it. I, it absolutely. And, and, uh, so people who are listening, please go support this. Um, you guys know, um, the message we've been trying to convey through the podcast, um, you know, that, that we are all God's children and, and everyone matters. So, um, I love the work you guys are doing, uh, before we go, where, uh, should people go to keep up with what you're up to and, uh, new music and all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, they can, I mean, for me, <laughs> Twitter seems to be the location and, you know, and I'm, I'm terrible with marking. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm scribble and people can find me there as scribble um, love that. <laughs> and, uh, that's been, been kind of my main outlet. Um, you know, jars of clay.com is a great space, uh, where they can hear what's happening with jars of clay. And then, um, talk in Paris. I think we're mostly on a Facebook page where they can find us, uh, there and, uh, see how dormant we are. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's really, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, um, I just want to say thank you. I, I really appreciate, um, the fact that despite, um, not despite, uh, but the fact that you have a platform, the fact that, that you've, you've, uh, continued to use that for, uh, for a good, good purpose. And, and, uh, you know, the industry hasn't, um, hasn't censored you at this point. So I appreciate your honesty and, and the heart that is obvious in the work that you do and, and, um, pushing the buttons in all the right ways. Um, I, I just appreciate your voice out there. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much. And again, my, my pleasure to, to finally get to spend a little time with you. So thank you. Try to cut the 